First Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to begin reading in verse 14. We'll read through the end of the chapter. And uh, as we do so, it's familiar because we've read through it several times. And I just want you to follow along closely. We're going to actually read through chapter 11, verse 1, which is really the conclusion of the thoughts of Paul that have begun in chapter 8. I'll bring out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifice partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience's sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner... And you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience's sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Well, let's see how well you have been ingrained with some of God's Word. Repeat after me. Knowledge. Actually, repeat with me, not after me. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. All right. And if there is anything you're going to get from this series of sermons, I hope it is that phrase ingrained in your thinking and active in your life. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And this is a simple sentence and one of the simplest sentences Paul ever writes. Um, He's got a few there in Thessalonians that are real brief, one word sentences. Um, But this is one of the smaller ones. Paul's prolific at writing very long sentences. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. We've tried to apply that consistently, and this theme isn't going to disappear when we get to the end of chapter 10, 
Um, it's going to be a theme that Paul's going to keep reflecting on now and again. Obviously, we're going to come to 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to find that in the area of the gifts of the Spirit and work in the church, that the model that's going to be used to measure their, their uh, application and use is going to be love. And so we're not going to uh, not ever reference this again once we get through this chapter 10, uh, but it is the core, and it's going to be repeated again here as we get to the conclusion of chapter 10. So 8, 9, and 10, we've looked at this concept, this principle that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. We've looked at the exercise of spiritual liberty that because we are free does not mean that we are uh, without some accounting in the exercise of that liberty that what confines us is not a law, but rather love. It confines our activity. It confines our, is the boundary, if you will, the boundary of our speech it is the boundary of our behavior, it is the boundary of our attitudes, it is our love for God, our love for one another, and that boundary is going to be extended again today, that we are going to finish the job, hopefully, of, of bringing this fencing all the way around us and understanding the boundaries that exist because of our love for God. So let's look at it here, uh, and again, I just want to look at verse 14 and 15, and we're going to go to prayer, and then we're going to look into our text. We looked last week that uh, we are called to flee idolatry. That among all the things that we are free, we certainly are free to recognize there's only one true and living God. And anything, anything beyond that that men might call God or that men might worship or serve, we know that that is error. And as such, we do not play with idolatry, but rather we flee it. For we recognize that it is something that is not pleasing before God. And again, as he has repeatedly done throughout the book of Corinthians, Paul reminds them that they claim the higher ground. That they are the ones that are claiming to be the ones in the know, the ones with the knowledge. He says, listen, you're the wise ones. I speak as to wise men. You should be able to judge these things for yourself. And those of us who hopefully are more careful in our claim to the knowledge of God that it's not a cursory, superficial knowledge, but a genuine uh, understanding of his truth, uh, should understand what Paul's about to share. That here's yet more evidence of how we ought to build these boundaries to our living, to our thinking, to our speech, based upon the love of God and true knowledge of his truth. And let's go to Lord in prayer before we get into this this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word before us, for your spirit within us. We thank you for your people here around us, that we can gather your name. And we pray that uh, your word might go forth with power, with effect upon us. That you might have the liberty to move in, in our midst because our hearts desire it. Because we are tuned to you. Because we hunger and thirst after you. Because your grace and mercy are magnified in our midst. Lord, we do pray that you might guard this time from error, from opinion, 
that it might be truly the wisdom of God that is communicated, not that of man. Lord, it is our desire not to be puffed up today, not to be inflated in our egos or in a superficial Christianity, but Lord, we want to be built. And we pray that you might do the hard work in us today. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. The Corinthians claim to have a great wisdom. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And they created those divisions because I know this and I know this and I know this. I know what Peter taught. I know what Jesus taught. I know what Paul teaches. I know what Apollos teaches. I'm the expert. And, and we have these divisions very early on in church. It doesn't, shouldn't surprise us that we see those today in churches. Uh, if they were back there, I assure you they're going to be still around uh, regardless of what Paul writes here in Corinthians. And so these people, these individuals there in Corinth, these groups, these factions, all claim to have a superior knowledge over one another, and they were wanting to exercise that, that I'm superior to you because I'm a follower of Paul. I know his teachings, and you haven't grasped them like I have. And so we find these divisions there. Um, we find it evident also in the manner in which they want to live their lives that some of them... Uh, had a knowledge, not not complete knowledge, but they had a knowledge of the liberty that they had in Christ. Paul certainly taught that. Christ taught that. Peter teaches that. Um, we find it extensively in God's Word that we have this freedom in Christ. But they didn't understand it. And so they exercised that freedom with disregard to the testimony of Jesus Christ among the world and with disregard to their fellow believers that they were supposed to be ministering to and instead they became a detriment to ministry to them. And in fact, they had no ministry at all except to undermine their very faith. And these, Paul says, listen, you claim to be wise men. I speak as to wise men. Shouldn't you be able to judge this for yourself? Just as he's been saying over and over and over again, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? And fundamentally, what I have to share with you is nothing new this morning. It's something you already know. You should be able to judge these things for yourself. Just as Paul's talking to the Corinthians, you already know these things. It's been communicated to you many times. I know because I taught it to you. But it hasn't gone beyond your head into your heart. And so a letter of this nature has to be written. And sermons of this ilk must be preached. To allow God's word to penetrate us and to allow the image of Christ to be ingrained in us. It's one thing to claim the liberty that you have in Christ. It's another to grasp it, to understand it, and allow it to put an imprint upon who you are. And this Paul calls us to. He begins this section. Remember, we have seen an example from his own life and ministry. We have seen him deal already once with the idea of meat offered idols. He's going to wrap up this section by going back to the original issue, which was meat offered to idols, and restate some of what he saw. So we're not going to spend an extensive amount of time on that, but some of what he spoke and shared with regard to uh, their exercise there. But we really want to look at the principles around that again. 
Um, but we're going to, have to do a little instruction first. Um, he's also given some Old Testament examples. He has uh, given several perspectives on the necessity of being built up in the faith and not puffed up. And the great danger there is to having lots of knowledge about God that never comes into our life to build up others and to draw others to Christ. That we end up sitting around saying, I know, I know, I know at every Bible study and every Sunday school lesson, every sermon, and every book we read. That we walk around and, and have this cursory knowledge, but it's never seen by anyone and it never helps anyone. And if your knowledge of Christ is not building up someone else, uh, you have to question whether you're just a puffed up person that doesn't really understand it. Because the purpose of that knowledge is not just to let you walk around saying, I know, I know, but rather to serve one another. And we're going to see that again when we get to 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. That same principle uh, put into practice in another area. But we have this area now in conjunction with the other examples and presentations of Paul with respect to this principle he now has this example let's talk about our communion table and we have to give some instruction here and the reason we have to do that is because all of the mess that men have made out of the lord's table over the centuries and it really didn't take them long to make a mess out of it and to bring questions into what it means and what's involved there Uh, obviously our discussion is going to be about what happened Uh, That night of Christ's betrayal, when he gathered his disciples together, partook of the Passover meal with them. And yes, it was the Passover, which means that we did have unleavened bread. We did have all of the accoutrements that went along with that, the Paschal lamb. All of those kinds of things would have been there in the Passover feast uh, that they would have participated in, where he identifies a new Passover, the Passover that is him, that he is the fulfillment of Passover. That all that Passover pointed to was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why we don't celebrate it today because it has been um, not usurped by Christ, but that it has been completed in Christ. It is not that we replaced Passover, but rather that we have completed it. And now we celebrate its completion. All the Passover pointed to is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we have this Lord's table that is instituted there uh, prior to his betrayal and arrest and death. And we have him giving us this instruction. What do we have? Uh, we have a piece of unleavened bread, uh, that uh, bread of haste that was broken. He shares it with the disciples and describes it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Um, take and eat of it. And as often as you do this, you re- we are recounting the Lord's death. He then takes the cup that was on the table, uh, drinks of it, distributes a cup of the vine, um, fruit of the vine, distributes it amongst his disciples, instructs them, this is the blood of the new covenant, this represents the blood of the new covenant, um, which is shed for all those that desire that covenant, the many. We find that um, he institutes these, and these are obviously pictures at that point, Christ hadn't broken his body open. The, the, obviously he hadn't, 
spilled his blood yet. Um, and so they are pictures then that night. They are pictures for us today. Uh, we do not hold to consubstantiation. We do not hold to transubstantiation. Uh, if you don't know what those terms are, let me describe them for you. Those are the theological terms. Uh, transubstantiation means, uh, and this is what uh, the Catholics and those of that body of teaching, which include the uh, Church of England, uh, which are the Episcopals here, and others uh, uh, in that group, that theological group, believe in transubstantiation. That is, that when the priest blesses that uh, little cracker and that little juice or cup, that that cracker and that cup literally become the body and blood of Christ. So that when you consume it, you're eating literally his body. That it has transformed itself from a cracker into the body of Christ as you consume it. And so as they put it into your mouth, they will say, the body of Christ. That as you put in your mouth, the blood of Christ. And they are, that's why the, the, the whole idea of a mass is that we are going to crucify Christ again, that that is what is going on there. And that by partaking of that, by partaking of that wafer, by partaking of that drink, that you are receiving from God salvific grace. It is part of your salvific experience. And so it's not just enough to trust in Jesus, you are partaking of that. That is called transubstantiation, that that wafer has transformed itself into the body of Christ. So when you consume of it, you are being imparted with grace from God and it is part of how you become right with God. Why do we have a problem with that? Because now, instead of trusting in Jesus Christ, the original sacrifice, what are you trusting in to receive the grace of God? You're trusting in this activity that you do, eating of this bread and drinking this cup, to gain favor with God. Rather than simply remembering the one sacrifice that Hebrews tells us was once for all. There was a single sacrifice that for all time, for all men, was sufficient. And therefore, it is not necessary for you to continually keep eating Jesus' body and drinking His blood. This is a spiritual truth that Jesus taught. And so once we trust in Christ's Savior, we seek to remember it. We seek to talk about our fellowship with it. And that's the word that He's going to use here, our communion with it are sharing in the body and blood of Christ. That when that sacrifice happened back there almost 2,000 years ago, that uh, that was for me. I trust in that. And that's why I don't partake in that. Consubstantiation was what the Reformation brought about. And so all of those Reformed churches that came out of that, your Lutherans, your Methodists, uh, all of that category of faith. Um, and by the way, that is, are not Baptists. Not Mennonites, not the Amish, not any of those groups. That's a different group of faith. That the Reformed movement that uh, Calvin and Luther, all of those guys were involved in, um, uh, held the consubstantiation. They saw the great danger of transubstantiation. And so, and they agreed with it. And they said, no, that's error. By faith alone, through grace alone. And it's not by having uh, last rites done. It's not by going to confessional. It's not by your uh, infant baptism. It's not by 
communion, your you know, first mass. It's not by any of those things that God's grace comes. It comes by faith alone. By trusting in God's grace. Not by any of the activities of men. But simply that trust in the work of Christ on the cross. So they saw the dangers of that. And so what they said is that instead of that wafer becoming the body of Christ, the spiritual body of Christ surrounds it. And con means with. And so, as you're partaking of that body, uh, or of that bread, that wafer, that the spiritual work of Christ's body is with it. Kind of surrounds it. Con, substantiation. And so, while you're eating of that, you are simply consuming of, along with it, the grace of God that was represented in the body of Jesus Christ. And again, um, like much of the Reformation, all they did was take one step away from Calvinism or away from Catholicism, and that wasn't enough. All right, and you need to understand that's why they call them reformers. They were trying to reform the Catholic Church. They were not leaving it. The Catholics kicked them out. They wanted to reform the Catholics. They wanted the Catholic Church to remain and to adhere itself to God's Word, and they tried to create those changes within it. The, they, re, they created that rift, and the Catholic says, no, you're heretics, and hunted them down and, and uh, burned them. Okay, And so that was their idea. Is that, and so they took a, one step away from Catholicism, and most of Reformed teaching from the Reformation, that's all it is. And it was a good start. The problem is, is that they stopped. They took that one step and not anymore. What do we believe? What do the Baptists, the Mennonites, that group, that body of, of uh, uh, theology believe? Well, we believe that God's Word is very clear that there is one sacrifice for all. And that we receive it by grace, by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And then why do we do these things? We do these things because Jesus commanded us to, first of all. We do them as a remembrance. This do in remembrance of me. That we're doing it as a memorial. And obviously, um, if you've ever gone to a memorial, you will notice something not happening at the memorial. Those people are not dying at the memorial every time you go, do they? Now, I've been to memorials. I've been to the Vietnam Memorial, a lot of the other memorials that are in Washington, D.C. area. And I've noticed that there are no human sacrifices going on at the memorials. Why? Because it's already been done. We are remembering what has already been sacrificed. We're remembering them. And so you go in there, and some of them are kind of freaky. That one for, is it the Korean War that has all the soldiers out there? And that's the memorial that's there for that and, and uh, with the hollowed out eyes. And, uh, and we go there to remember the sacrifice of those men uh, and some women of uh, the military in that war. Uh, but we don't go there and expect people are dying there today to memorialize. And so this is a memorial of Christ's sacrifice that happened at one time. It is a sober time for us to remember that. So, why is all that necessary? Because we're going to talk about this communion table. We're going to talk about partaking of the body and blood of Christ in this memorial act. An act of worship whereby we remember what Christ 
did for us. And so he's going to refer to the cup of blessing which we bless is not the communion of the blood of Christ. That word communion, whereby we get the idea that we are going to partake of communion, that's how we refer to it, um, simply means a fellowship. That we share in this. That we have that we have associated ourselves with the blood of Jesus Christ. I have connected me to that. I have trusted in Jesus Christ and now I fellowship in that. That is, that is what brings us together in communion with God and in communion with one another is that we have this in common and that is the work of Jesus Christ in shedding His blood to cover my sin. And so we have that communion with that blood of Christ. I don't have to partake of this to have that. I have that already and I want to signify it by the partaking in it. And the bread which we break is not the communion of the body of Christ. And so again, this fellowship or this sharing of the body and blood of Jesus Christ that has redeemed us, that has paid for us. Now we come into the work of love. We, though many, are one bread and one body. We all partake of that one bread. Remember that the Corinthians were dealing with disharmony in the church, with division. Paul says, listen, you only have one Savior. There is only one sacrifice. And when we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ by faith, trusting in Him, then bring that work into our life and, and by, again, His grace and working that we walk worthy of the gospel of of Jesus Christ, that when we bring that knowledge of Christ into our life by faith, trusting in Him, mixing it with the love of God, we ought to have unity with one another because we become the body of Christ. And this is going to come forward later, so I need to take time here to study this out. In chapter 12 of this book, we're going to talk about that we are one body. That the church is a body with many parts. I, and we all have bodies, so we all know how this works. That we have brains, we have eyes, we have a tongue, we have hands, we have feet, we have kneecaps, we have all these body parts, and they all have their own functions. But we refer to, um, I don't sit there and talk about my hand as though it's somehow disconnected from the rest of me. I know we have figures of speech that kind of sound like that. And if you ever, uh, he's, well, he's in heaven now, you'll never get the chance to do that. I remember Bud Johnson had cancer and, and uh, had his ear removed. And so he, they gave him a prosthetic one that snapped on. And so he would come up and he said, Fred, Roman countryman, lend me your ears. And he'd take it off and hand it to you. It was very disturbing for some kids, but it was kind of funny if you really thought about it. All right, lend me your ears. You know, we understand I'm not literally going to take off my ears and give them to you. They're not indistinguishable from the rest of me. I mean, you can tell that they're there, but you're not going to disconnect them and, and, oh, I left my hand over there. I left my, but we are one. We refer to our body. It is all these member parts. So we're going to study this extensively in chapter 12. But I want you to see the foundation of that idea that Paul's going to use in chapter 12. And it's right here. We are one flesh and one Blood, and it's not our flesh and blood, it is Christ's flesh and blood that we have associated ourselves with. We have identified ourselves with Christ. 
and we have this superimposition of the body and blood of Christ upon us, and it becomes the definition of who and what we are. That those that I'm related to in my physical blood are of secondary importance to those that I'm related to in the spiritual work of Christ's blood in me. I have more in common with you in this room who have trusted in Christ your Savior and seeking to walk with Him than I have in many of my physical relatives. Now I'm going to shock you. Okay, I would probably be more likely to leave a family reunion to come and do your funeral than I would to leave you to do their funeral. Are you shocked? I hope not. I want you to grasp what this means. This is what it means to be the body and blood of Christ. In our society, because of our many church buildings and many congregations out there and all the little quirks and isms that they all carry uh, individually from each other trying to be unique so they can gather people of them because we're what you're looking for. I hope we never become a church that's what people are looking for. I hope we're a church that's what God's looking for. Amen? You guys agree with that? Okay, let's be a church that is what God's looking for, not what men are looking for, because men are looking for excuses to keep sinning. I'd rather not give them any of those. They're looking for comfort um, when they need salvation, deliverance. Um, So we're going to... We have all these churches out there, and it's created a very dangerous situation. And here's the situation. There's no reason to get too connected to your local church. We have interchangeable parts. And I want to share with you, interchangeable parts are artificial, not genuine. Bud Johnson could take off his ear and hand it to me, and and I could look it over and look at the snaps they put in his skull, and and it's kind of weird. Um, But I knew that that wasn't a real ear. It's artificial. And we can sing the songs till we're blue in the face that we are the family of God, but until we start being committed to one another like that, it's just a song. It doesn't mean anything. Until we start putting this on and say, we are one in Christ. And we have lots of people trying to teach this with respect to you should compromise theology. We should all get along because we're all one in Christ. And therefore, it doesn't really matter whether you believe about consubstantiation, transubstantiation. Um, we just need to be, all be one. That's not what is being taught here. If you really want to apply this teaching, it is in the local church, the church of Corinth. Don't you understand that you are all the same body? That you have been drawn into that spiritual body by your fellowship, by your sharing in Christ. That we have partaken in that one sacrifice 
And therefore, everything else should be already worked out between you. All these divisions are wrong. They point to something. They either point to the fact that you don't really understand what it means to participate in the body and blood of Christ. Or that sin is in your heart. Either you're ignorant or you're in sin. I find in Scripture very... The the list is really small of what really are the problems in churches today. Why don't we have a unity? Why are there divisions? Well, it boils down to it for Paul, one of these two things, either you don't really understand your salvation, you have knowledge that puffs up. Or you have sin. For one of those two reasons, there are divisions in church. I know that's a little simplistic maybe for us to say, oh, it's complicated, Pastor. No, it's generally not complicated. It's about personalities and, and about different ministries and i just grown out of this and into that. And No, it's about obedience. It's about applying this principle that we are one body. I know we're many. I know we're varied. I know we're different. That's okay. I don't expect you all to appreciate my personality. I don't... Where are you? Mr. Archuleta and I have been having a thing because he says I squint at him when I'm... What's going on? Give him that scowl look. And my wife actually took his side. Ah. Now we're going to have to have marital counseling. Thanks, Chris. It's not a personality issue. Fundamentally, it's about are we willing to surrender ourselves to an understanding of this truth that I have a communion with you that's unbreakable. We are not detachable from each other. (laughs) We are one in Christ. It often comes off spoken by pastors in this way. Um, Some of you are going to have a really, really hard time spending all of eternity together with each other. We have to think in those terms. This is the communion that we have. Now, that's the introduction. Now we're going to get into the real force of what he's trying to teach. All right. You understand your communion with Christ. Your identification with the body and blood of Christ. You understand what it means for us, and that is that we are one body. We are one together. He's going to take an example again from Israel for the Jewish people there who understood that if you participate in the sacrifice, you are partakers of the altar. In Leviticus, you put your hands on the head of the animal, whether it was a bull, a sheep, a goat, and... uh, for the peace offering, for a sin offering, you put your hands on that animal. The animal is then sacrificed. All of its fatty portions were burned. The meaty portions were given uh, as a for the meat for the uh, priests to consume. Um, and you did that. You, you partook of that. You were there for the whole thing because your sin was pictures being put onto that animal. And brother in Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb, but as also the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is our sacrificial Lamb. We have put our sins on Him. We have identified ourselves as sinners that only here by by partaking of Christ can I have those sins forgiven. 
And that that wondrous work of God in my life to take away that sin needs to be reminded in my heart again and again. And that's why we partake of the Lord's table. So, with all that, we come to verses 19, 20, 21, 22. With all of that power, if we really understood what it means, that, that this isn't just a sinner's prayer, this is about a fellowship, a communion between me and the sacrifice of Christ, that that sacrifice is mine. The reason we eat and drink these things is to communicate something. It is in me. Christ in me. The hope of glory. That it is what I am. It is who I am. It is my sustenance. It is my... uh, Desire it is my longing. It is, it is my definition of who I am and whose I am. That I am His and He is mine. And so when we partake of this communion table, um, we do so with that knowledge. And Paul says, how can you, with you, if you really, really have an understanding, not just I know, I know, that's what communion is, yeah, we've heard it all before, but a real understanding of that. How can you then go out there and fellowship with demons? How can you do that? And this, Paul tells us, is why we flee from idolatry. It's because those nice people that you work with, those friends at school, those Facebook buddies, those pagans, Gentiles, do not I don't care how nice they are to you, how much you like their personality and get along, how much you have in common with them. They do not worship. They do not have any fellowship with that which you have fellowshiped with. They are worshiping demons. I say, well, they're a nice guy. And we have painted in our minds this idea of the worship of demons that somehow they're in black robes and there's, there's human sacrifice involved and that they walk around at night with big hoods on them and uh, that's demonism. And uh, let me share with you that that's not demonism. I want to remind you what demons were doing in the days of Christ. Um, they were helping people make money. They were running around um, unbathed and crazy-like without clothes on, which um, this day and age, that's pretty much everybody is running around with hardly any clothes on. Um, They were participating in... Here we go. You ready for this? In church. Not church, church, but in synagogues. They were in the synagogues. 
You see, we paint this idea that demonism is this really black stuff and witchcraft and all that, which, by the way, is all around and it's there too. I'm not excluding that. I'm just saying, don't you think that that exclusively is demonism? Anytime the world engages in any form of worship, they are worshiping demons. Really? What they sacrifice, it says those Gentiles, they're sacrificing idols, so they go out there, they paint a rock, or they carve a rock, or they carve a piece of metal, um, a stone, whatever it is, they set it up, and they start to worship it, and worship it, and here comes Paul saying, it's not really a rock, we know that it's just a rock that they painted a picture on. But you realize that by doing so, what is that that rock is representing is not God. That rock is representing demonic activity. That is what they worship. So it says, flee from idolatry. We are saying, listen, I have this fellowship, this communion, this oneness with Christ. How dare you conceive in your mind that somehow it's okay to have that and a communion and fellowship and oneness with this activity. Israel thought they could do that. They thought we can serve God and we can serve the Gentile gods. We'll go out every and we'll do the Passover thing and we'll do the sacrifices and we'll do all that. And then during the week, we'll go do their sacrifices and stuff. And we see the prophets condemning them over and over and over again. And, and God is specifically describes them as unfaithful wives. You're an unfaithful wife. Would you tolerate that from your wife? You guys okay with that? You know, when I'm there, she's my wife. And when I'm not there, she's somebody else's wife. Are you okay with that? So she's only my wife when I'm home. And then when I'm gone, she can go sleep with whoever she wants. And yet this is what the Christian community is largely doing. And the same prophetic statements from the Old Testament are true today in the church. Because we don't have an intense understanding of our communion with the blood and body of Christ... We think that somehow, and by the way, it's not just Baptists that don't have this. Um, even, even the Catholic community, I mean, they have it in spades because they've got huge problems. People think they're coming and eating Jesus, and then that night, because they have partaken of Mass, they can go out and live like the devil, and they do. They don't have any understanding of it either, and they even think they're eating Jesus. But here we are on this spiritual level. We should have a depth of understanding of this communion. How can we possibly then go out there and mix it up with Satan's world? And fellowship with it. Commune with it. Engage it. Not as as a witness to it, but rather just because it's amusing. Because we genuinely enjoy it in our flesh. And my conclusion is, you don't know. You're not wise. 
We can't judge for ourselves the depth and the breadth and the height and the width of our relationship with the blood and body of Jesus. Another author says, you're crucifying Christ all over again. How can you do that? You can't. Then once we have tasted of the heavenly gift, you can't then go off there and engage in this relationship with the demonic and then think you could somehow come back and smile at God. He's just happy to have you there on Sunday morning. As long as you put your check in the box. Wrong. Wrong. Our communion with Christ ought to envelop us. It is who we are as Christians. If we have true wisdom, if we truly grasp that, then we can easily judge the things around us of what we should and should not be involved in. We know what they worship, what they live for and die for. We know, don't we? Can't you recognize it? When we were in India, we recognized it, and we weren't there very long. It was easy to recognize it. You know, there's a little shrine. The person picked up a smooth rock and painted a little picture on it. Some of it's just lines, three lines for some reason. Stick it on there, and and they're going to worship it. And it's like, why? But then you look into their eyes, and you look in their life, and you know that that's their worship, and you're like, oh, you see the demonic activity in them. Well, here's what we do. We have our idols. Our world lifts them up. We give them little hunks of metal about like that. And and it's only worthwhile if you get a gold one. If you get a silver or bronze one, it's not worth anything. Um, Only the gold ones. And we set them up and... And then if they get a lot of them, they're the best of the best. I want to be like that. Why? Those people are miserable. Not all of them. There are believers that are out there winning gold medals, I'm sure. We set up the sports figures as idols. We set up entertainment figures as idols. We set up all of this, and we need to recognize, and by the way, anything that makes money, boy, can't be bad because it makes me money. Demons making people money. Yep. Been doing it for thousands of years. Whose are you? We have a communion with Christ. And so we come to this statement. <laughs> Who are you messing with? Okay. We claimed Christ. And a lot of people walk around and say, I'm a Christian. And you go, do you understand what that means, what you just said? And they don't. Because we have muddied that water so bad, you can't drink of it anymore. You can't call yourself a Christian or a society anymore. It doesn't mean a thing. I suggest you find a new term. Who are we messing with? When we call ourselves Christian and go out there and drink and fellowship with demons. You're messing with the Lord. 
God of all the universe. It says, do you really want to provoke the Lord of jealousy? You're taking on God himself. You're throwing your nose up at him. You're giving him the whatever sign. That statement, whatever. Yeah, problem with this God, whatever. You got to love me because you're love, ha. And we throw our attitude up to God. And I want you to understand what a provoked God looks like. A provoked God said to Israel, not only are you going to captivity, but many of you are going to die, including unborn children. They're going to be pierced through while they're still in their mother's stomach. He didn't say that to the Gentiles. He said that to Israel. Because they thought they could play Christian one day a week and play with the gods of this world, the demons of this world, the rest of the time. God says, you provoked me to the point where I can no longer stomach it. And when that time comes, this secondary question of verse 22 in Corinthians is very powerful. Are we stronger than God? Are you stronger than the Lord? Do you really think that we can just keep tempting Him and keep tempting Him and keep tempting Him, provoking Him more and more and more to jealousy and to rage and think that somehow we're going to hide? I go to church on Sunday. I tithe. I pray before I eat. You really think that that's going to shelter you from the anger of the Lord when you have gone off and played with demons most of the time? A majority of your attention is driven there into the world's worship patterns. Paul says, listen, if you're really the wise ones you claim to be, if you really know, you certainly must judge this to be the truth that if you have a genuine relationship with God, you must hate sin. You must want to serve Him alone. You must separate yourself from the gods of this world. What does that look like? It says that if I'm going to engage the world, I'm going to go to them with the gospel, and I'm going to go and eat with them, that... uh, I'm not fundamentally there to engage in the worship that they're engaged in. I'm there to reach them for Christ. And I go to where they are, and I absolutely positively agree with that. You have to go to where sinners are to find them, to reach them. But he says, listen, if you go there and they say, you know, you're eating with me and you're eating with them, that's fine. You know, that's a normal activity. But when they come to you saying, This I've offered to idols, and so we can eat it as an act of worship. You stop right there, you're done. Because now we've just entered into the demonic. I say, well, what if it was offered before? But you see, it wasn't an act of worship, it was just a meal. But once that person who offered it to you says this was offered to idols and makes it an act of their worship, you cannot participate in their worship. Do you understand that? If we understood that, there is no problem with us understanding that 
whatever culture you're in, you know that that is their act of worship that is not towards your God because your God doesn't require that kind of worship. That is not your worship. How dare you participate in it and still claim, I'm a Christian on Sunday. It's easy to apply this to the Native Americans with because they still have their cultural identity more uh, driven uh, with their dances and things like that. It's easy, but it's all around it. I know what my culture's worship patterns are, don't you? Don't participate in it. The Bible says in the last times there's one idol you need to watch out for. And you've heard me say this dozens of times, so I know you already know this, but it hasn't sunk in. You know it, but you don't understand it. There is one idol that's going to come only in the end times that the Bible specifically warns us about. And it says, watch out. Woe to that generation. Woe to those ones. And this is the idol. When metal and wood and stone can talk. The talking idol. That inanimate objects can talk. And you do realize that that has never, ever, ever been the case until the last hundred years. And I say, Pastor, it says that? It says that in the Bible. Where? How back? A couple other places. Chapter. Those minor prophets, they don't read very much because we don't get them. Woe to the one. To the ones to the society, to the culture that has idols that talk. Brethren, (laughs) welcome to the world of demons. We have inanimate objects that talk. The Bible says, woe to you. Are we stronger than God? Are we provoking Him by our activity, by enjoying what the world enjoys? This past week I watched a video. I want to encourage you to <laughs> watch a video to learn a lesson about not watching videos. Yeah, funny. Time changer comes forward in time and says, what has happened to society? That we actually are watching people blaspheme God in our living rooms. And we have no problem with it. We are paying money for it. Can't afford to help the poor. We can't afford to to build churches in places like Haiti. We can't afford to do those kind of things. But I have to afford this blasphemous work of demons being brought into my life. And into the weakest of faith among us. Who is that from last week? Who are the weakest in faith among us? Our children. And we not only allow it and invite it, we command them to go participate in it. Quit bothering me and go watch some TV. Woe to the ones who have idols that talk, that can speak. Brethren, do you really understand the fellowship you have with Christ? 
We're going to have communion tonight. Pastor Leachman's gone. I've been studying this this week. We're going to have communion tonight. Come ready. Or don't come at all. But come grasping some truth. Because we're going to talk some more tonight. Am I Christ? And not just today. Am I Christ out there? I'll go into the unbeliever's home and have a meal with him. He needs the gospel. But I'm not going to go out there and worship with him. Because what he worships is of Satan. No matter how benign we want to believe it is. So I invite you to come tonight and participate in a communion service as we exercise an opportunity to have a memorial over that one that we call our own. Let's pray.